You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for another episode in our Trowers and Hamlins ESG series, where we speak to various leaders across the globe on their ESG journey. So today I have with me someone really special, Shabna Mokhtar, the Managing Director of Shape Knowledge Service. Um, she spears head the R&D activities at Shape. So Shatnam, welcome to today's episode. Very Hi, excited Nicole. to have you here. Hi. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. Very excited <laughs> here with us. Thank you so much. Um, maybe you could start by sharing a little about yourself and um, what you do at Shapes. All right. Thank you very much, Nicole. First, thank you, you know, Travis and Hamlin for uh, inviting me and inviting uh, Shape to share some of our thoughts in this space. Uh, so very briefly about me, uh, I have about about 20 years experience in Islamic finance, actually in different uh, aspects of Islamic finance. So although I started as a Maybank scholar and was supposed to work for Maybank, uh, but you know when I, when I graduated, uh, my university, UPM, offered me to continue my studies. I went to the States, did my master's, came back. And that was my first, when I came back, my head of department said, Shabnam, can you teach Islamic finance? Keep in mind with zero background, right? And this is this is way back in 2003, I came back to Malaysia. So I started with the um, academic side, but the way I like to do, even when I was in the academic side, I love to do applied research. That's always my style. So at that, at that time, I was also doing some editorial work for Rate Money Group, uh, Islamic Finance mm -hmm. News. So I was talking to practitioners. So I, I always, in my teaching, I always bring in the practical aspects and the challenges that they're facing. Um, cutting short after five years I left, I went and joined ISRA as the uh, head of capital market research unit. Uh, that's the International Sharia Research Advisory established by the Central Bank to focus on uh, research. Um, uh, I would say then I left uh, Malaysia, I went to Kuwait in 2010, um, mm -hmm. where I joined uh, SHAPE. So very briefly about SHAPE, uh, it's, a, it's a consulting firm. Our main focus so far has been in the Islamic finance space. Again, very, very broad based, all the way from retail to capital markets and derivatives. And we have been blessed. We started as a U.S. firm. Originally, we wanted to set up an Islamic bank. Uh, the way it works in the U.S. is slightly different. you got to get your uh, approval, the credit approval from OCC. And then for the deposit product, you got to get approval from FDIC. So we had all that in place. Um, my boss, Abdelkadi Thomas, he's the founder and CEO. So he was a banker himself. You know, had a lot of experience in the states and the uk and the gcc as well so we started in the us um although we didn't launch our bank but uh, there are clients that actually licenses our credit and the deposit products so that activity is still going on and we have been seeing a number of islamic finance activity picking up in the states actually particularly this year very exciting project in um in seattle in minnesota and a number of other, other uh, states as well then we set yeah. up a shop in Kuwait uh, that has been our headquarters for a long time. From there, we actually serve clients in various markets, in Africa, in Europe, in the States again, in Southeast Asia. So I'm a Malaysian. I think the thing that I really enjoy at Shape is it's actually uh, dealing with different clients, different market that exposes me to different environment, different regulatory challenges, different client needs. And you try to find a solution that actually uh, delivers value to these clients. So that's that's very briefly uh, what we do. Uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the sustainability space, 
Alhamdulillah, I'm also blessed to be uh, one of the chairman committee at RHB Islamic Bank. I think they've been very, very supportive of my, uh, you know, expanding my, my learning journey. Um, so uh, my interest in sustainability, I would say, started, uh, you know, I've been looking at it maybe for the past five years, but really seriously, I looked at it since I would say 2020. At, at the chairman committee, we always have engagement with the board. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's one one board session, you know, this engagement session, the management said, can you please uh, share with us, you know, what's happening, what's interesting in the, they actually wanted me to talk about social finance. Uh, what I did, I did a quick research and I actually brought in, because social finance for me is one element of impact investing. So I brought in the idea of impact investing and shared with the board and they were really, really happy. So that that was actually, I would say that the, the the kickstart of my sustainability and impact investing journey. And since then, it's been really, really exciting looking into different aspects of sustainability and impact investing. It was very interesting to hear you share your journey and where you've been all over the place, US, Kuwait, and very exciting things that you're doing right now. So you were talking about impact investing. So maybe you could share a bit more about what is impact investing and, and is there a demand for it now? Why is there that demand for it? Right, all right. Uh, really interesting. I would say impact investing is, is a bit more, I guess, depending on which market you are in, right? Uh, I would say in, in Southeast Asia, in Asia, it's slightly new. But I like to use this because we, we are used to ESG and sustainability, right? So the way I call impact investing is like ESG 2.0. I like to differentiate. By the way, uh, there's, an, there's an amazing program at uh, Science Business School in Oxford. Uh, therefore, impact investing program. Uh, so a lot of things that I'm going to be sharing is actually from there and the and the fellowship that I that I uh, just completed in June this year under the sponsorship of Securities Commission and uh, Oxford Center for Islamic Studies. Uh, you know, really amazing findings that I that, I'm, that I'll be sharing hopefully in, in this podcast. So the way I look at impact investing and how it's different from ESG is actually A B C. Uh, so A usually what very easy starting point in ESG is actually negative screening. You avoid right. Uh, and I think that we actually share a lot of similarities with uh, Islamic finance uh, screening as well, right? We, we screen out the, the negative activity, the non sharing compliant activity and, and certain things. So it's actually avoidance of uh, harm. Yeah, we could, we could look at the harm from, from many aspects. Uh, impact investing, I would say, is actually about the B and the C. What are the benefits that we're actually bringing? So it's actually about creating positive uh, impact. Right. Uh, so I love the definition that uh, World Economic Forum has actually provided. So impact investing is actually you have you intentionally want to achieve double impact. What is that? You're impacting. You have to, of course, the financial return, but also social and environmental return. So it's not purely about making money. Uh, it's about how you impact the planet and the people as well. So you could think about it like a triple bottom line. But that's one aspect of it. So the double return, or sometimes people call it double delta. But also, the you must actively measure. You can't just say, I'm impact investing without measuring. So there are two elements of it, the double delta and the uh, measurement. So that's the benefit. What are the benefits you're bringing? Uh, but longer term, so impact investing is always about having a long-term impact. So let's just very briefly understand what's the difference between outcome and impact, right? So there's always input, outcome and impact. This is like the, the minimum three we got to understand. So input yes. are the things, you know, that, that we put in. So if, if you're in the financial sector industry, for example, if you look at a lot of reports, be it, be it from asset management companies, be it from banks, usually you say, oh, this is our impact report. But if we notice, a lot of it is actually talking about their input. 
how mm. many financing do we give? How many customers do you have? Right? Those are all inputs, the things that are actually going into your business. So outcome is a bit more the, the short-term and the medium-term results that you get, right? Oh, what's your, what's your financing book uh, like? What's the size, right? Uh, how much profit did you make? So those are all outcomes. So when we talk about impacts, really long-term, what changes did I make to my customer as a result of my financing? For you to actually be able to tell that, you got to measure. So that's the ABC. Uh, A is ESG. But of course, uh, ESG is also, I think we are moving from just negative screening to integration. So that has a bit more of what are the positive impacts that you can, you can have on society and the planet. But really see is what is the long-term contribution that you're actually making, the change that you're making. Wow, that's a lot. Wow, very, very interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> You, you've also mentioned earlier about um, this is something that uh, a program that Oxford Business School is, is also educating the public about and they had some findings about it. Would you like to share more about that? Uh, it's really, okay, it's really interesting. I think, uh, I, you know, I love the program directors there was Gail Peterson and Professor Alex Nichols. Very interesting when he brought up the, the numbers actually on ESG versus impact, right? So why, is, so why is it important? Why does it matter? You know, you know, is it just different terms that we're trying to label Relabel. So he said, for example, if you look at sustainability reporting, right? Just look at sustainability reporting. The number of sustainability reporting is actually increasing. It's a lot. So I'm not, I'm not you know, if, if you have the uh, data, you can see how it's actually just spiking. Yeah. Uh, if we take a proxy, so you can't, you can't get exact data, right? If you take a proxy of the impact on the environment, for example, look at CO2 emissions. So we would think that if there's a lot more sustainability reporting, if it's really impactful, the at least the CO2 emission should be coming down, but it's not. It's just increasing maybe at a higher rate. So this is why, first, it's actually about awareness of why we need to measure and uh, why we need to actually have that longer-term vision. I know, I think in the Malaysian market, in the Southeast Asia market, we are just starting our sustainability journey. For me, that's why I, I actually call it as ESG 2.0. I think we should be uh, you know, starting our yeah, sustainability journey, but we should have a longer-term aim where we actually want to be in maybe 10, 20, 15 uh, years down the road. Uh, you were asking earlier, is there demand for this, right? Mm-hmm. It is actually uh, one of the reasons why, uh, although it's not yet as big, impact investing is not yet as big. For example, just the traditional finance, uh, just if I look at global asset management companies, right? The active top 25 uh, asset management companies, they manage about 70 trillion US dollars asset under management. So impact investing market is just about, just under $1 trillion. So we are still very, very small, right? But the problem in the impact investing market is not about lack of capital. It's actually lack of connection. People are not aware. People don't know how to move it, where to move it. Is there scale? So there are, of course, a number of challenges. But why is impact investing starting? There's actually data on this. Uh, JP Morgan quoted like three studies in 2017 when they actually uh, launched the impact investing report together with Rockefeller Foundation. So Rockefeller Foundation plays a immensely important role in this particular space. So they are, I would say, at the forefront of thought leadership and actually doing a lot of deals. So when they, when they published that report in 2017, this is back in 2017, yeah? Uh, that's about 70 trillion US dollar. That's actually changing hands from the first generation to the second generation, right? And who do you think is the, is the biggest group in the second generation? It's going to go, money, money is actually going to change hands to two main groups. Women, woohoo, go girls. <laughs> go <Girl> power. <laughs> and actually millennia. 
these two groups, their thinking is actually very, very different. You know, you know the, the, the first generation, we, we always separated. I say we, although probably I'm in the second generation group. In, in the, the first generation, the aim is actually, I want to do business. I want to make money in my business. And then I'll think about philanthropic activity separately. I'll mm. do good separately. But now, especially, you know, 90% of women, so that there has been surveys, a number of surveys in the States, 90% of women and about 50% of millennia, they say, why do I need to separate this again? Can't I just do it together? If you remember my definition of impact investing, that double delta, I yeah. want to make money, but I also want to do good. So it is now running parallel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, for, for my research, what I did actually, because one of the misnomers that you, when we always hear the, the term impact investing, we assume or there's a, there's a feeling, there's a conception that it must be below market return because we want to achieve impact, right? So we, I got to forego my financial return. So what I did, I particularly looked for deals that was impact investing, but providing above, at or above market return. So all these deals, if I look at the international banks that are actually active in this space, it all started from the same origin in the organization. It all started from the private banking space. Why? Because this is where the money is. This is where the half, uh, you know, high net worth, ultra high net worth is. This is where the money is. And this is where the change is actually coming from. I said, I do not just want to do you know, separate where I earn my return and where I do good. I actually want to combine both. So what do you have? Right? What are the options? Uh, there's, a, there's this amazing book by uh, Dr. Judith Rodin. She is the uh, she was actually at UPenn before, and she was the chairman of the uh, Rockefeller Foundation. So her book, the, the book is actually make, making money moral. Uh, in that book, she actually highlighted an example where you know there's this immensely wealthy uh, woman that actually went to the asset manager, the fund manager, right? the, the private banker, basically asking for you know I actually want to do good and make money. Do you have options for me? They said uh, no, kind of no. This is maybe 10 years back. I said, it's okay. I'll just set up my own family office. So if the, if the financial uh, institutions are not providing that solution. So for me, why impact investing is actually increasing? It's purely driven by demand and supply. There mm. is demand for it coming especially from the wealthy individuals. If there's no supply, they are going to go and set up their own family offices and manage things, right? So this really reminds me of the Islamic finance space. If you think about asset management, the Islamic equity space, at least in the 70s and the 80s, the rich Arabs, they would go to all these fund managers, right? They say, okay, maybe I want to put maybe 10% of my money in Islamic investment. Do you have any? It's like, uh, no. Maybe in the 70s, no, it's acceptable. In the 80s, if there's no, it's an answer, they're actually going to bring their money elsewhere. So that's why actually even in the Islamic equity space, uh, there was actually a lot of solution provided by these international bankers because they actually want to meet that demand. So it is demand-driven, but of course, that's also why uh, a lot of these impact investing products and uh, solutions are actually taking place in the Western market because this is where the awareness and the demand is actually coming from. And I also believe, I think, you know, although may, maybe in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, this is not yet a commonly used term, but just talking to my friends, right? Uh, for example, I have a friend who's... A, the family is, is in, in real estate business in Malaysia. Um, so she's the gen second generation. She actually want to do change. Right? Mm. A number of other, other uh, second generation in Malaysia as well, they actually want to see change. They want to do good and make money. Mm. Wow. Yeah, definitely sounds like awareness slowly seeping in, especially with the new generation that's coming in. And exactly like you say, you know, they don't see that there is a, you know, it's, making money versus making a change, right? It's basically, why can't we do both? Why can't we also make 
well, make money and also be able to make an impact and change to the world around us, right? Yeah, so, so it sounds like 10 years ago, there isn't much of such product in the market, hence why you have people actually setting up their own office and going out actually doing what they um, wish to do to make that change. So now that, you know, ten, fast forward 10 years to now, um, do you actually see more of such um, impact investing products in the market? Yes, absolutely. So I'm going to name a few banks. Doesn't mean that, you know, others are not doing anything in this space. It's just, you know, due to time and, you know, things that I was looking at. Uh, absolutely. A number of banks are actually very, very active in this space. Um, uh, to name a few, uh, because I was actually, what I did in my in my fellowship, I was actually looking into blue economy in particular, because mm -hmm. I think there has been a lot of studies on green. Uh, even just yesterday, I was reading, uh, 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 I think, an interview on, on SRI Sukuk in Malaysia. Uh, if we if we look at the component of SRI so in Malaysia, it's still very much oriented to green and renewable energy, right? Uh, mm. Whereas if you look at Malaysia, we are just surrounded by the ocean. So, um, so you know, when I was looking at, at blue economy, Credit Suisse plays a important role in this. They are at the forefront of the blue economy. Uh, so how did they start, right? They actually started with structured product. Why structured product? Because you know, capital is guaranteed. So investors are comfortable. They're not going to lose their money if they don't make return. At least they, you know, the capital is protected. And then they actually went into the first year was actually very, very small, only about $15 million because they wanted to dip their toe in the space, right? Uh, that was actually on uh, fair trade uh, cocoa in Africa. The base, the capital protection, they always work with high quality issuers. In this case, they've, they've been working with World Bank in a number of deals. So they buy the World Bank bond. So that's, already secured and then the upside the option they would place in a number of things that they actually want to uh, go into so they start with that 15 million uh, conservation finance and then they actually went into um, low carbon blue uh, low carbon uh, blue economy uh, space so that was a, a bit larger about 28 million dollars uh, uh, again they were working with world bank that's the the, the base of the of the uh, uh, the structure and then they actually went into companies listed companies now that's actually a bit have a low carbon footprint. Uh, mm -hmm. And I thought what was really interesting is, okay, once you're comfortable, now they actually want to really go slightly bigger, uh, but appealing to millennia. So they worked with uh, the uh, Rockefeller Foundation again and the Ocean Foundation because the Ocean Foundation is actually the real expert in issues. What are the actual scientific issues that we're actually facing in the ocean today? And what can we do to solve it? So the way they did it, that was actually a public equity strategy. So they would just buy public listed companies that are already doing activities in the ocean. So they would avoid, so they would actually do a screening, but because this is very thematic, right, with the, with the ocean. Yeah. So working with Rockefeller Asset Management and the Ocean Foundation, they would actually identify who are the ocean leaders. You know, this is based on the activities of the companies, right? Uh, who, who can actually get up there with the leaders? And who are the endangerous? The endangerous, they would absolutely avoid. But the other companies, they would actually use shareholder activism to engage with the companies to actually improve. Because they were working with the Ocean Foundation, they are able to actually provide you know, accurate scientific knowledge on how these companies can actually back the structure solutions and bring it to market, right? So for that, because it was a, it was a unit trust uh, structure, it was only $100 uh, minimum investment, but they were able to raise $200 million in just wow. days. Right? Wow. Successful, successful. So these are, these, are, you know, these are interesting deals that you can actually do. And you know, what, what I love also 
impact investing is not about just one asset class. It's okay. actually an investment approach that you can use over all the asset classes. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the way actually to 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 think about this. Um, UBS UBS is a big has a, they have a big focus on education. So they mm -hmm. structured a lot of social impact bonds in India, but the way they work. Uh, how how and they were able to deliver return of you know there was one deal where it was actually seventeen percent IRR, another deal the low slightly lower about water in Uganda was about eight percent IRR. Still, you know these are good returns, right? And you're still making impact. So how did they how did they work? This is another thing that I actually see with these successful uh, you know offerings as well. So where's the money coming from? Money is coming from the private banking and the asset management arm. But who who knows all these uh, you know social enterprises or social entrepreneurs that are doing making the change in the community? That's going to be at the foundation level. Just just think about our our setting in Malaysia, right? If you, if you look at financial institutions in Malaysia, how many groups there are with the commercial bank, investment bank, asset management arm, and has the foundation? But are we talking to each other? What we are doing? Take the, the private banking arm of our businesses, right? Do we actually talk to the customers to understand whether they are actually interested in this space? Do we actually talk to them about what is their philanthropic uh, interest so we can actually structure something uh, at the asset management and the foundation can actually be involved? So how can the foundation be involved? Let me give the example of UBS. So asset management, money came from there. Foundation is going to manage that. Give the money to the, to the change maker, uh, to, the, to the social enterprise that's actually going to implement that. But because this is going to be impact investing, you're going to need that third-party entity that's going to be first measuring the impact, monitoring the progress, and then mm -hmm. you're going to have a, another entity that's actually going to be verifying the impact outcome. Then what does a foundation do? Because foundations, before this, what do they do? They basically give away money, right? They donate the money, correct? But what, So if the impact is actually achieved, the foundation is going to pay that outcome, which is going to generate that return to the investors, that 17%, that 8%, whatever the number that you uh, mm. agree on. So you can see the theme here is ecosystem. You need yeah. the different parties. We need to understand what are the roles, what are the interests, where do you want to go, to, where would you want to go, and how we can collaborate. You can actually structure a win-win-win deal for everybody. Yeah, sounds amazing. And like you say, it is an ecosystem, right? And it sounds like one of the key things in that ecosystem is actually measuring the impact, right? Absolutely, and absolutely. That is always the challenge and that's something that is so um, the hot topic right now. So do you see any solutions being developed in the market to help, you know, different organizations, different people measure the impact? Absolutely. Uh, it's really interesting, you know, when I did the Science Business School Impact Program, uh, yeah. Prof. Alex Nichols is, is an expert in this area, uh, in impact measurement. So he said, you know, because we come from the finance space, right? So this is not an area that we usually look at. So we think it's like, it's very difficult, you know, what are the tools for us to use? For him, he said, no, this is easy peasy. It's not difficult. It has been mm -hmm. done for so long. Where do we look for inspiration? It's actually in government accounting because they need to measure impact, they need to measure outcomes, and actually uh, developmental economics. So this is where the, the methodology are actually all there. But what we need to do is actually, okay, how do we use this in a commercial setting? Because all the, the other one is actually more on developmental and governmental impact, but how do we actually use it in a commercial setting, right? 
So I, I I always think you know I don't think technology is like the 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 magic button, but technology does facilitate, does make it easy for you to measure impact. So I've come across a, a few. This is by no way to promote these these uh, entities, but you know just just from my research, these are the the some of the few that I've actually come across. I'm sure there are a lot more out there. Uh, one is actually called Impact I M P A K. Uh, it's, a, it's a French Canadian uh, venture. Uh, they actually want to move from just measuring ESG, just from sustainability reporting, to actually measuring impact. Uh, they actually have a, a score of 1,000 maximum, and they look into, okay, remember the ABC I mentioned just now? So how much of your activity is actually about avoidance of harm? That's A. How much are you actually bringing benefit, or at least uh, you know minimizing negative impact? And how much are you actually creating positive impact? And they would actually look at this amazing dashboard. I had, I had the chance to actually look into the behind the scene of what they do and what they offer. If you go to their website, they even have a case study of Unilever looking at, okay, this is because Unilever is the, is the leading ESG company out there, right? So if you take the ESG leader in ESG, let's look at the impact of it. How much score do they get? Uh, but mm -hmm. what I really love is because you can use this tool across asset classes again. And it's very, very much investor-driven. Investor can say, okay, I want to measure this, 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 this. Um, how do I do that? You know, they then work with the companies to get the data point and have it in a dashboard. And you can actually, uh, and it's, it's actually direct, it's connected to the SDGs, different SDGs. Mm -hmm. And it's also connected to the uh, impact management, uh, sorry, impact measure, measurement project. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where the, the standard for impact measurement actually comes in. So that's an example. Uh, of, uh, of a um, impact measurement tool. Uh, there's another company called SOPACT, S-O-P-A-C-T. They allow you to do impact experiments, right? So because you're going to do impact measurement, right? Or you're, you're new in this space. You don't know what solutions would work and which one is more effective. So yeah. they allow you to do small pilot deals and measure your impact. So then you can actually, okay. So pilot deals, you can see this is more effective. So then you can take that and go uh, onto scale. Another one is actually called 60 decibel, right? Your wave to hear. This is very interesting. If you know Jacqueline Novogars, she's the CEO and founder of Acumen. Acumen has been doing impact investing since the, I would say, since the late 70s. Uh, amazing story if, if you read about the Acumen itself and the, and the founder's journey. But they, so 60 decibel started as an impact measurement project for Acumen, Acumen funds. Then... It was so successful. What was interesting, I think, you know, yesterday, I think during, during your, you know, Travis uh, session, Travis Agnesik and Elias actually highlighted, we need to pay attention to qualitative data as well because sometimes we are so focused on the quantitative data, we forget about the qualitative data. What 60 decibel does, they actually speak to the beneficiaries of the, whatever the fund, you know, the, they actually speak to the beneficiaries. So this is all through qualitative approach, right? Interviews and, and focus groups. And then they transform that data into quantitative data. So, you know, there are, there are a lot of solutions out there. I think what's most important is when we want to start this impact measurement journey, we, want to, we got to understand, the organization we got to understand, why are we doing this and for whom are we measuring? Because if we are measuring to show the impact to the beneficiaries, you got to ask different set of questions. If we are measuring for our board and our funders, they want to look at different data. So you, you got to have that clarity from the beginning before you start this journey. But let me tell you this, I had the chance to speak to a number of you know, international investors, right? One of them is actually Nuveen Asset Management. Uh, they actually have been doing responsible investing since the 60s, but they put together an impact measurement framework, I would say 10 years back. 
what they do is you can't get this correct on day one. So what you need to have is actually start your framework, measure it and always improve. And what they, without missing, do is always speaking to their investors because it's important. It's again, why you're doing it, right? So for Nuveen, they're doing it for their investors. So they want to understand what's important for the investors. So they always fine-tune, recalibrate their methodology based on the input from the uh, investors. Hmm. It's a, it's a work in progress. Absolutely, it's a work in progress. Yeah, and definitely sounds like the Euro and US, as always, they are ahead of the game. <laughs> you know, they've been doing this since the 60s and it seems like here, well, we're both Malaysians and we do know, you know, how things are here. And it just sounds like we are just starting to catch up to all of this, these various measurements, various um investments and, and products that we're seeing already emerging in the Western market. You know, do you, do you see us actually accelerating here, you know, in, in growing it or would it still be other challenges or impediments? Um, I think, you know, we, we are uh, playing catch up at the beginning. Uh, I'll give you some data from Greenscook. So this is going to be off the top of my head. If I get the numbers wrong, please do. Uh, you know, I, I apologize in advance, but this is from... <laughs> The research that I did a few years back. If you look at green bonds, uh, mm-hmm. it took them about uh, 10 years to reach the one trillion mark dollars, right? About 10 years. Uh, but green sukuk, if I'm not mistaken, uh, just last year, our total green sukuk issuance was about 800 billion already. Wow. So we might. We kind of like the hair, I suppose. We might be slow. <laughs> but eventually, we'll catch up. But, but the key yeah, we're is... catching up. Why? Why? Okay, why did it start in the Western market? We got to understand that. Because why? Mm-hmm. Say, I'm saying this, you know, this is not a sophisticated economic analysis or anything. This is just purely from my observation. There's two mm-hmm. factors. First, <laughs> they've done all the harm when they, when they started their economy, right? They've done all the pollution and other bits. Uh, so they had a head start. They've developed their economy. Uh, but then that's when the awareness came, mm. right? If, if, you know, I, I just came back from the UK, recycling that is like, it's like, you know, I had to food items that I'm going to discard as a compost bin. Uh, yeah. Recycle bin, I actually have a bin. But it's because they've actually seen that what are the negative impact on the environment. So it's just mm. a, a, a lot more mature journey, I suppose, that they have gone through. Mm-hmm. So this awareness is there first and money is there. Right, mm. nothing, nothing speaks louder than money. Money, right? Yeah. So awareness and money. I think those are potent combination. But in our market, we also have that. Sometimes, I sometimes say what, what I feel with the Eastern market is, we may not be telling our story as loud. So we may be doing mm. things. For example, uh, this is again a shout out. By no means that there are you no know, other foundations are not doing this. I just have been recently following Yasan Hasana. Uh, I think they are doing a fantastic job in this space, right? It's just maybe we are not as loud telling our story. But having said that, uh, I always take the approach. Again, again, we can, we can, we can relate this to Islamic finance as well. You know, mm-hmm. isn't this, shouldn't this be natural to Islamic finance? Shouldn't we yeah. be doing this from like the start of our industry? Um, to be really, really practical, when we started the industry, the aim was to provide an alternative to conventional finance, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we were always give what, what's conventional and what are the alternatives we can, we can provide. Uh, but now we are at a stage, I think Bank Negara has issued this uh, value-based intimidation framework, what, five years back, 
yeah. Securities Commission has all this sustainability linked uh, framework. Uh, so all these things are coming in because now we're going to see, okay, what's next? What's next for Islamic finance, right? Uh, so why do I think there is opportunity in the non-Western market? Because this is where, if you think about transition finance, be it in the commercial banking space, be it in the capital market space, this is where a lot of activities are actually going on. And this is, that's why the Green Sukuk last year was able to reach 800 billion just for that particular year, right? Because this is where all the transition activities are actually going on. So what we need is actually, I think awareness is there. Awareness is, is I would say, it's, it's almost like a continuous activity. It's almost like an annual activity that we need to do uh, to give people awareness. But also then, once you have the awareness, how, right? So how? So this is where I think uh, the role of bankers and advisors actually is very, very important to show the companies how it can be done. Uh, and if you do it correctly, because of the growing demand from investors, just think mm -hmm. about Sukuk, right? If you go to the international market, among the largest buyers of Sukuk, actually conventional investors. So if we structure an Islamic deal and we structure it as impact, as ESG, you just widen your investor base. So I think mm -hmm. I'm always sort of on a positive note, uh, regardless where our starting point is. If we are clear how, what we want to do, uh, and we actually look for collaboration, I think it's doable. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's very true. So thank you very much for sharing all of that. It's very insightful and definitely very, very exciting to see, you know, the potential that we actually have here in Malaysia and also in, you know, our region generally so one final question for you is that um you know if there is actually one thing you could change in enhancing impact investment in malaysia what would that be i'm going to come back to that word ecosystem uh because uh, you know when i when i look at deals that were successful they always have these multiple parties playing role to make a deal successful uh especially at the beginning you know whoever is pioneering is going to be difficult uh, my husband's American, he say, you know, the frontiers, the, the people who actually uh, went and explored America, they had a lot of arrows on their back because that's what <laughs> frontiers do, you know, you, you go into yeah. uncharted areas. Um, but uh, let, let me give you an example. So uh, when, I, when I completed my fellowship, right, so I saw that trend, we need that ecosystem. So just thinking, you know, because I'm at RHB and I see other, other financial institution group as well, right, as, it's that easy example that I gave. Do we know when you're dealing with the high net worth individual, what's their philanthropic interest? We get, we're getting to start to have that conversation. We can't just separate it because that's where the money is. Um, the foundations, how many foundations, not only at the, at the financial institution group, but we have thousands of foundations in Malaysia, how many actually have strategic focus, right? Are we even aware of what are the opportunities available in all these SDGs, right? Mm -hmm. is, you know, why am, I, why am I a big proponent of blue economy? So the ocean has amazing opportunity as well as risk. Because if we, if we do not manage the ocean, we're going to have a lot of natural disasters that it's going to be really, really costly to manage. So SDG 14, life underwater, is the least invested SDG, right? Uh, so I think for, for me, what, what we need is actually, um, and I, hopefully in, in a few months, we have something coming along. Because, uh, for example, in the impact investing space, there's a, there's a body that's called the National Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. So this is a board at the national level that kind of brings all the parties together, right? Once you bring the parties together, for me, to, the way to go forward in this space is actually to identify pilot deals. Yeah. We make it happen because then we'll identify, oh, we need to fine-tune this, fine-tune there. 
Um, maybe we need to put certain incentives. You know, who are the parties that we want to bring together, and then we can actually move forward. We can scale uh, from there. So I think that's the, that's the way uh, to go forward. Uh, we focus on ecosystem. We focus on connecting, and we focus mm. on collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Really, really great stuff, Shabnam. You made really good points, and yes, ultimately, I think it's everyone plays a part here. Absolutely, like absolutely. Bring something to the table, and it's just connecting with each other and making something happen there. Could maybe share one one final uh, recommendation, right? I think what we can do as individuals is actually just find your passion because everybody, for example, I might be like, although I can't really swim in the ocean, but I'm not really passionate about the ocean, right? So I think each and everybody, we have different things that make us tick. Find something that 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 you're passionate about. Read, mm. read, read in this space. There's just a lot of information out there. Um, mm. I would I would recommend Project Drawdown because what they've done is actually they've actually really made the science very simple, as very evidence based. And it's not you know the key is there's no one solution to this, right? Mm. We gotta find what works in different market. But once you have the data and the big picture then you can actually be, you, you, can, you can take small steps and find other people who wants to do this as well. It could start as a, you know, like a small, a few parties, you and I coming together doing something and then, you know, because of our passion and our interest, it eventually evolves and we can make a difference. If we do not give up hope, uh, there's actually a lot of things we can do. Definitely. Thank you so much, Abner. Appreciate your time. It's, it's been great having you here on, on our podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Nicole. And thank you, Travis and Hamlin, for having me. Wishing everybody a wonderful, wonderful closing year. And hopefully next year will be a lot more opportunities for us. Yes, definitely. Looking forward to that. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at Trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.